Right. Uh, I'm speaking to a very, very special guest on the podcast today. Uh, probably India's best podcaster and the, be- and the best podcaster I've listened to. So, uh, hi, Amit. Uh, thanks for hosting. Uh, thanks for coming on the show t- today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. But you embarrass me by saying best. I mean, one of the things I've realized as I grow older is that one should not use absolute terms like best and top three and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. I think, you know, to be, if you said my uh, my favorite podcast, that would, for example, mm-hmm. be the biggest uh, sort of compliment you could give me. But when you say best, it kind of rings false because there are just so many great podcasts out there. And my approach to podcasting is always let a thousand flowers bloom. Mm-hmm. Let's not compare podcasts. Okay, when I say best, it's my conception of of best. So sure, it's yeah. somewhat <laughs> equivalent to favorite. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you for that. For those yeah. who don't know, uh, Amit hosts the Seen and the Unseen, a politics about politics, uh, economics, and public policy. So, um, Amit, you have said several times on your podcast that you're a libertarian. Right, but if you look at the history of Indian intellectual thought, all the way from the Upanishads to maybe the more recent reformers, Rajaram Mohan Roy or uh, Rajaji, almost none of them were li- libertarians, right? Maybe Chanakya was, but but even that's a little st- of a stretch. Why are you right, and why is why is five thousand years of philosophy wrong? No, 5,000 years of philosophy is actually right. And mm-hmm. see, first of all, I'm a little hesitant of the label in the same mm-hmm. way that I have grown to realize that saying things like best or top three doesn't work. I think labels are also dangerous because they put you in this little box and then everybody looks at you through the prism of the accumulated baggage the box mm-hmm. has carried, mm-hmm. right? Because people will have their own impression in their heads of, oh, a Marxist is like this, a libertarian is like this and blah, blah. And I don't want to get into uh, those sort of tribal situations. But here's the thing and here's what um, all these great minds that you name, all of them, without exception, have in common with me, which is uh, the way I define uh, you know my uh, the, the, my way of thinking about the world uh, is um, has centers around individual freedom, especially centers around consent. Like uh, you know, there are two broad questions that I've kind of grappled with in my life, um, which seem different questions with different answers. And one of them is how should I live my life in terms of what is the best, most moral way to live my life, and the other answer is what should be the relationship between the state and society. And my answer, and if people will think these are different questions, and they'll have different answers to them. And I have the same answer to them. In fact, I'm at some point I've been planning to write a book and kind of explain what my thinking is. But my answer is consent. Uh, that this centers around consent. That in our everyday life, uh, any uh, you know the ethical way to live is a way in which you respect everyone's consent, and therefore the flip side of that is you avoid coercion as far as possible. And that's as far as personal morality goes. And in our personal morality, if you call that libertarian, then we are all libertarian. So if you and I were to go out to a restaurant to eat, for example, uh, you would not force me to eat what you like. You would not decide for me, and I would not force you to pay for me, right? You have five uh, people going out together; they're eating different things, they're paying for themselves, and if one person gives a treat, it's a voluntary thing, so on and so forth. So, in our personal lives, we respect, ideally, hopefully, each other's consent. We don't use coercion, but the moment we abstract it out to a higher level, then we think it's okay. Consent doesn't matter; coercion is fine, right? And that abstraction is a problem. Now, as far as the second question is concerned. Uh, you know, what is the relationship between the state and society? Now, again, this is sort of a liberal paradox that the, to exist, the state 
uh, you know, the state needs to exist to protect our rights. And therefore, to exist, some of our rights are gone. We give the state a monopoly on violence and, uh, you know, so that it can protect our rights and protect us from further violence. But beyond that, it is a relationship that, according to me, ought to be governed by consent, not just for moral reasons, but for uh, utilitarian reasons. Because as we have seen through history, the economies which progress the most are the ones which respect consent, which respect voluntary transactions the most, which have a free people, a free society, and free markets. None of which we really do in India in the sense that we should. And therefore, I would define my worldview as striving towards greater freedom relative to where we are. So not striving towards some utopia where everyone is free and we are all chilling and having pina colada, but uh, more towards a place uh, where we are more free than we are today. And in that sense, all the people you named, Raja Ram Mohan Roy or uh, so many of the great Indian liberals like, uh, you know, Dadabhai Nauruji, Ranade, Gokhale, Agarkar, all the way down the line, were in some respect or the other trying for greater degrees of individual freedom. And a significant chunk of um, philosophy, uh, therefore, recognizes um, uh, the importance of the individual and the importance of individual agency. So I don't really see myself as something apart from that. I just see that lives around me would be infinitely better if they were freer. And therefore, that is what one strives for. And that is what, uh, you know, one tries to write about and um, bring those ideas into the discourse. On that matter, I, I more or less agree with you, but, but I want to push back on a few things. The first is that it, it is not entirely obvious to me that people don't want to impose their morality upon others. A significant number of people I know, and, and you must know them too, who keep lecturing on how you should be vegetarian or vegan or whatever. And a small minority of those get get, get really angry and they, can, they go beat up people who sell meat or, or whatever, right? And if you look at um, democracies across the, the recent past, last 10 years, it, it is clear through surveys and election results that most people are fine with, with that sort of coercion. They don't think consent should be the governing order of society. They think it, it, it should be their, their version of moral order. So, so it's not entirely clear to me. The second thing is that uh, it, even if consent is the more is is a very important value, it's also not clear to me why it is the most important value, right? There are several there are not several, but at least some places where, for example, economic growth comes into um, comes into conflict with it, or things like safety, or um, things like protecting against existential risk come into conflict with consent, and I find the philosophy you, you, you espouse in your, in your podcast to be not wrong, but, but lacking in dealing with those problems. Uh, so, yeah, I'll address those one by one. So your first one is that, uh, yeah, so there are individuals who uh, don't respect consent, who want to impose their values on others. And I think all reasonable people would agree that that's wrong. And those who don't, I mean, if they, but in general, and maybe there's a selection bias at play here, but in the circles you and I move around in, I'm sure we would not be uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, our approach would be much more of respecting individual agency. But yeah, I mean, India inhabits many centuries at the same time. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, uh, there might be uh, places where there is certain kinds of progress. There might be places which are incredibly backward and still in the 19th century. And it is a natural human tendency 
to impose yourself to try and impose yourself on others if if you look at the way that we are wired we are wired in contradictory ways we are wired to crave power and power always corrupts and so on and so forth we are also wired to want to live together harmoniously in peace and these come into conflict and sometimes you know the balance shifts from here and there but yeah especially you know sitting in india as i am looking around me yes people don't care about cons- uh, consent especially the second part when you look at how voters vote and all of that that's absolutely true uh, i mean that's the whole crux when i talk about how my answer to these two questions is consent i'm giving you my answer i'm saying that these would make for a better world the real world unfortunately this is absolutely not appreciated especially in our politics where you cannot get uh, you know i think that when two uh, consenting adults um uh, you, you know do some engage in any voluntary transaction that doesn't harm anyone else then we should be kosher with it whether it is in the bedroom or the marketplace and depending on which party you talk to and which ideology you talk to they'll have problem with one or the other and i think it, that it is both immoral to interfere in uh, such voluntary transactions between consent consenting adults and it is also dangerous because every such transaction is a positive sum game what is the secret of prosperity that we are always uh, sort of transacting in mutually beneficial ways uh, you know one of my friends had this interesting theory that when you are uh, measuring how well a country is doing it's a mistake to look at numbers like gdp and i had a long episode on the gdp and how what a flawed concept it is and how gameable it is you know the government could just dig a ditch fill it up dig a ditch fill it up and endlessly on an infinite loop and gdp would just keep shooting up and my friend's conception was that let us instead measure the number of voluntary transactions in an economy so kind of simplistic but you get the concept the importance of uh, those sort of voluntary transactions as far as the second part of that is concerned i would say that economic growth does absolutely depend on co- consent because if you look at how consent translates into economics it translates into voluntary transactions that don't harm anyone else uh, being kosher and unfortunately um, uh, and and that's how one would define a free market i i think one mistake people often make is they confuse the term market friendly with business friendly and actually they mean opposite things if you're business friendly you're probably not market friendly because business friend because any big business would really want to shut down competition to protect its turf to you know um, and so on and so forth and that harms consumers and that's why for example in 1944 the famous bombay plan all these bombay industrialists came together and gave this plan to nehru uh, which agreed with his command and control vision of the economy because that was fine for them because uh, they'd be protected from competition they wouldn't have to lift their standards and so on and so forth but it harmed the common people of the country in fact that mindset kept millions in poverty for decades longer than necessary so uh, it it does in terms of uh, you, you know uh, the, the the growth of an economy and therefore the growth of a society uh, very much come down to uh, consent and as far as edge cases like externalities like what do we do about climate change what do we do about uh, environmental issues and all of that it's easy to address that from that prism as well like why is a the state there the sole purpose of a state is to uh, protect our rights and at some level when there's existential risk for example it is protecting our rights by protecting us uh, us against those existential risks that is a very job of the state you know uh, and and that is one of the few legitimate uh, things that it should do so i don't uh, i don't view any kind of contradiction there 
um yeah that's my brief answer by existential risks i, w- I want to be clear about what we're talking here things like nuclear war or um pandemics killing all of us or something like that i presume that's what you meant those yeah, are existential risks uh, a pandemic killing all of us climate change down the line or even if you don't use a grandiose term of existential uh, risk there are always negative externalities like for example the the the, the uh, terribly polluted air of delhi which basically mm-hmm. means everyone living in delhi is basically has a you know it's equivalent to guaranteeing yourself mm-hmm. lung disease uh, and a shorter lifespan supposedly uh, some s- number of cigarettes a day i, I don't know the number I think yeah yeah it must be it's some crazy number uh, but the thing is that growth alleviates is because mm-hmm. if you for example if you look at um, a modern city like London right today London by international standards is a really clean city if you look at it circa 1900 it is an environmental mess it is mm-hmm. way more polluted than it it is today it's a desperately unhealthy place to live there's all kinds of shit going wrong but you go a little bit up the curve of economic growth and citizens become empowered and uh, you know start demanding more and then eventually it modernizes in the way that it has so you know but that that's uh, uh, you know that's a journey that you make now that is obviously something that one of those areas where you kind of need the state in i mean we can of course talk about coercion solutions and all of that mm-hmm. which is great i think by and large the state is needed even in these cases far less than we think but you know these are the classic kind of uh, sort of uh, actual market failures where mm-hmm. uh, which the state is there to uh, sort out and like ajay shah and vijay kelkar have a lovely book called in service of the republic i yeah, recorded amazing. an episode with them also and uh, you should in fact have ajay on your mm-hmm. show I'll, i'll i'll put you guys together oh thank you and so much and where where he also really lays out his uh uh you know the way he looks at public policy and the role of the state and so on mm-hmm. and uh, so forth and here's the thing you know you can uh, uh if you want to kind of read about the state and uh, there are some incredibly thought provoking books like seeing like a state by james mm-hmm. c scott mm-hmm. is fantastic yeah. but for uh, his historical uh, reading i really recommend francis fukuyama's two great books on mm-hmm. um, uh the history and origin of the state and he's also got a very brief volume and i can't remember any of those names offhand right now uh he's got a brief volume on the state and on governance and the the, the of the frame that i like with which he talks about this is he talks of thinking of this uh, state in terms of its scope and in terms of its strength right mm-hmm. so the scope is a number of things that it does mm-hmm. and the strength is the state capacity how well mm-hmm. it does them now someone like me would believe that a state should do only a few things and do them really well so you want the state to do rule of law you want the state to you know um uh take care of defense and public health in certain places where um, uh you know you can't uh, rely on civil society solving its own problems but for everything else is got to stay out of the way so you need a state that is strong in terms of strength but limited in terms of scope in india we have the exact opposite it's extremely weak there's no rule of law in india there simply isn't except for absolutely the most privileged and even for them you can't call it the rule of law per se they're just using their privilege and their access uh, for the common person there is no rule of law the state doesn't do the things it should do properly and it does a whole bunch of things that it has no business doing to you know to refer to another sort of uh, prism uh, that i learned about from james buchanan uh, one of the uh, uh, pioneers of public choice economics uh, he spoke of states as being either protective slash productive on one hand uh, which is an idealized view and predatory on the other hand 
and most states because power corrupts because states tend to like to accumulate power because they would rather rule over people than serve them tend to move towards a predatory side it's a natural uh, in- uh, inclination and in india i would say that um, uh, you know it is entirely predatory entirely doesn't you know does so little for the people that you can round it up to zero um, and and that that predation really comes from having power over others and therefore from restraints on individual freedom and on consent so you know that's kind of where i'm coming from i find everything you say very sensible but most people do not <laughs> now my next question you know i i got to tell you at this point that every time you say but everything that comes before the but you don't actually mean it so no, anyway i do you. find it sensible <laughs> i do i do yeah. i do but why is there such a big what is the difficulty in convincing people or in other words what is the uh, what is the missing libertarian outreach program in india yeah i wouldn't use the term libertarian outreach but uh, that's a good question and i'll tell you what the problem is the problem is that uh, all that many of these great truths of the world are counterintuitive right you think about how our brains evolved our brains evolved in prehistoric times when we were living in small tribes of less than 150 people which is where the famous dunbar number comes from uh, in tribes of less than 150 people times of scarcity and so on and so forth and uh, a number of the ways in which our brains are wired come from there for example we think of the world in zero sum ways that is natural right that if somebody is winning somebody else must be losing and a lot of economic fallacies and mistakes that people make in thinking about policy come from that that you're thinking in a zero sum way the world is actually a positive sum game every voluntary transaction between two people make both people better off right so now when we talk to each other there isn't a winner and a loser both of us are winning because we're having a good conversation we want to have right uh, i i love a phrase that uh, john strossel uses uh, the double thank you moment and he'd written this great column on this a seminal one for me where he speaks about how if you go to a cafe and you buy a coffee and you know when the barista hands you the coffee you say thank you to her and she says thank you to you right you you value the coffee more than the money you paid for it and the cafe values um, the money more than the coffee so it's a double thank you moment both people are better off this is counterintuitive it's it's very hard our, our you know our brains aren't wired to think in this way another way in which our brain isn't wired to think is in terms of spontaneous order like so many of the delightful things around us from perhaps uh, uh, the evolution itself all the species around us or languages or culture and especially the economy are products of spontaneous order they don't need a central planner in fact a central planner can get in the way but it's a completely dispersed sort of system which runs best when sort of left to itself uh, and when individual nodes of that system are not uh, you know stopped or hampered in any way and this is again a difficult concept to get around because the way our brains have, have evolved is we don't think in those scales we can't conceive of those scales it's almost incon- inconceivable so the intuitive thing is that to ma- to be able to run something you need a planner you need a leader even the sort of preference for a strong macho leader might well come from uh, those times because if you're living in a tribe of 150 people life is nasty short and brutish you want the leader of your tribe to be you know the biggest strongest mofo there is uh, so we are wired in all these ways which makes these fundamental truths uh, kind of uh, counterintuitive and therefore it is important to kind of keep hammering on in these points at least bring all of this into the public discourse uh, and in india frankly they are absent you know like um, uh, if you sort of look at our uh, p- politics 
you know all our parties in, in terms of economics are left of center which is their statist the state plays a huge role you know different parties at different points of time have gone in a different rhetorical direction but they haven't delivered on any of that right uh, and uh, you, you we had this sort of golden moment and these excellent 20 years between 1991 and 2011 when uh, million, you know hundreds of millions of people were brought out of poverty and that was great but we seem to have kind of reversed that and uh, as uh, um, you, you know as jefferson said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance so i think what we have to do is we have to constantly sort of keep uh, fighting uh, and keep at, at least keep uh, the notion of consent the notion of individual freedom and liberties and rights at the center of the discourse which is not enough the case today and it is a lament and i don't think it's going to get better anytime soon but we have to do what we have to do All right, I think that's a that that's a fair answer. One of the problems I have with evolutionary psychology arguments, like like the one you made, is that um we have the rest of our lives work very well, right? I spent three hours a day on Twitter, which was we were ne- nobody was uh, was 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 uh, evolved to get two troll accounts every thirty seconds, but we cope with it, right? What is so special about politics? That 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 attracts the the worst in us because for the rest of our lives we're slightly bad at it, but we're mo- mostly okay. I think, uh, like first of all, I think Twitter attracts the worst of us, and politics also. But I think uh, Twitter absolutely brings out the worst in people and attracts the worst human beings, empowers them, gives them a platform. So the, uh, incredibly toxic. But good question i think at all times humans are, are not only responding in ways that they are wired to respond and we are wired in contradictory ways so we could be wired to uh, compete with each other because uh, of that zero sum mentality we could also be uh, wired we are also wired to look after each other you know self interest and altruism are both wired into us i don't see them as contradictory or as any kind of dichotomy and the other thing to remember is humans are always um, sort of uh, responding to incentives and they'll respond to incentives depending on the environment around them for example one common lament which people will have about indian politics is that our freedom fighters were such you know were such great men and women you know they were such fine thinkers we don't have that kind of quality of leader we don't have that quality of discourse what has gone wrong and i wrote a column a while back talking about this and my point was that look you look at the incentives at the time you know your gandhis and your nehrus and your patels and your rajajis came up there was no power to be had they were not lusting for power because there was no power to be had on the other hand they were probably going to spend a lot of time in jail which people like them did there was little chance of their succeeding and yet uh, they were animated by principles and they fought the fight that they fought because they believed it was a right thing to do period right so it attracted uh, men and women of that stature today when you look at politics the way our system is designed the way our incentives to, um, are designed the state basically uh, has taken over from the colonial rulers that we overthrew in 1947 and uh, it is a predatory oppressive state and therefore anyone drawn to politics is drawn by the lust of power they want to so they, they want to rule over other people they want to get power so they can make money and you, you know use that money to get more power and so on that interplay between money and power as is well known so now you're attracting an entirely different kind of person in the public square if you go back to say 1930 like if pratap bhanu mehta one of my favorite essays if he was alive in 1930 and i'm just speculating here i think he would be one of these freedom fighters he'd be fighting with them um and if nehru was alive today i don't think nehru would be in politics i think he would be writing columns like pratap bhanu mehta 
right so uh, the the kind of people who emerge in politics at any given time is a function of the incentives when i spoke about twitter also why it attracts the worst of us it's a function of the incentive uh, of the incentives you know jonathan hate has famously said about how everything started going backwards once the facebook like button and the twitter retweet button came in because then you're constantly seeking you're turbocharged uh, uh, to seek validation and you you go down that trip you know you'll join an ideological tribe and then you'll want to signal your status to them get their validation the only way to do that is by attacking people on the other side and attacking people not arguments and attacking people on your own side for not being pure enough and it is a race to extremism on both sides and uh, and a lot of the behavior is uh, on twitter for example it, it, it's just at a level which uh, you know in the real world would be considered um, ludicrous like the quote tweet for example you know like if you and i are standing at a party and uh, i say something you don't agree with imagine if you then clapped your hands and attracted everyone's attention and pointed to me and said amit said this he is such a moron lol right while i'm standing right besides you that would never happen in real life there is a certain civility there is a certain dignity to the discourse but it happens all the time on twitter and social media where people are shitting on each other all the time to raise their own status and i find that toxic but in all these cases i find people responding to incentives in rational ways so the question that then comes in is how do we create the best incentives like one thing i believe is that too often we make a mistake by lamenting that we need better people in politics you know if our prime minister or chief minister or whoever was a better human being that would be fine we need a better quality of person i think that's bs i th- i think we need a better system with the right incentives like ideally we should have a system which has such good incentives and such good checks and balances built in that if the worst human being possible the most evil vile sociopath person possible was in that in charge that person could not do much harm because that person would also be constrained by the system and responding to incentives and we don't have that so yeah that's my sort of answer to what you just asked I've seen you even on controversial issues be extremely polite on social media. What is the Amit Verma guide to talking on Twitter? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, you I haven't always been polite. In the past I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes in terms of sometimes it kind of um uh, it's not easy to kind of um, not be affected uh, recently i've kind of learned that and i've uh, figured out how to behave but in the past i'm sure i have also been intemperate i have also uh, sort of uh, criticized an individual when it's much more productive to just talk about an idea and s- talk on the basis of ideas uh, one of my uh, points and i think i had a solo episode of the scene in the unseen the only solo episode of the scene in the unseen i think it was episode 49 where um 49 or 50 one of the two i think 49 where i spoke about where i uh, you know spoke about how we behave on twitter and the rules i've set for myself and the key rule here is do not personalize you know if you are responding to an argument respond to the argument respond to the substantive points raised uh, it's too easy to get in and personalize the whole thing the uh, one dominant mode of discourse on um social media seems to be that if i don't agree with you you're evil right if you are saying something uh, that um, uh, is against what i believe in you are an immoral person and i will mock you for that and abuse you for that and that's dominant 
and the thing is that is easy to slip into that sometimes and you kind of have to control yourself and so the main rule that i think that i keep for myself is that whenever i'm putting a tweet or putting something out there what ideally and i'm sure even i slip up sometimes but what ideally i would like to do is focus on the idea focus on the content of the uh, idea not attack a person like i used to edit this policy magazine called pragati for a couple of years a while back and my editorial one of my editorial uh, uh, guidelines there for myself which i had set was that we will talk about ideas and policies we will not focus on people or parties right because i think focusing on people or parties takes you down a tribalistic route it's much better to talk about ideas or policies and stick to that now at this doesn't mean that you don't criticize a political party i criticize all our political parties obviously the one in power the most because they can do the most damage but they're all pretty dismal and that we are entitled to do and and that i give myself the freedom to criticize those people and those parties because we are citizens they are supposed to be accountable to us you know they are sort of living off the taxes that we pay they are supposed to serve us we have to hold them accountable so in that case we do have to have our focus on them but otherwise it would not be like if you tweet something that i don't agree with it would be very uh, silly of me to respond by saying oh pradyuman is this or that or whatever and get personal instead it's much better to just focus on the idea and talk about that and when you and what i have also done is and perhaps is self censoring myself but whenever i realize that there is no point entering a discussion especially on twitter because people are not arguing in good faith right they will misinterpret some random word that you say and they'll quote tweet and they'll make a big thing out of it there is no possibility of engaging in good faith on twitter most of the time so then i'd rather write a newsletter post about it or talk about it on my podcast which has an entirely different kind of uh, uh, listenership rather than engage so this is broadly how i look at it but we are all human there might be times when you know at 3 am even i am pissed off and i'll say something about something because uh but in in general i try to kind of now keep it under control and you not shouldn't be, be on twitter at 3 am <laughs> Yeah I'm I, I'm the point is it depends on your working hours. <laughs> no no no. Right? So, I, 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 I agree. With I, I I I agree. But I but I I'm a I'm a very small account on Twitter and I've and I've like seen like five of these maybe in the last 6 months. I guess it just it just scales up with size. Um I want to talk to you I said you know the listenership of your podcast is very different. I have a, a friend and uh, somebody who's helped me a lot you, you you may have heard of him his name is uh, Visakan Virasamy have you have you heard of him yeah i've heard of him i've seen his twitter account i've never interacted with him but yeah i've heard of him he does yeah, seem to have a pretty good following one of his core ideas is you should focus on things you you want to to encourage right build the pro social norms you want and i wonder what sort of social norms would you have would would you encourage other people to give on twitter in real life to ensure that this sort of behavior isn't tolerated because in my experience i'll i'll tell you something really interesting i'm in national service now and and on the on the first day when you when you enlist right they basically like everyone's like oh i'm sick of this and the moment the norms change when a senior officer enters or or or, or the sergeant enters the rules of the game change so i feel that one of the the things i have i have understood is that you can absolutely build your your own social norms so what's your answer to that 
okay two part answer part one is that for yourself of course like one of the things as i've grown older uh, you realize that time is limited and uh, mind space is limited and there are so many things you want to do which you will never have the time to do so you want to uh, sort of cut out the unnecessary stuff in your life and therefore i try to stay away from toxic people and negative people and negative discussions and all of that uh, and therefore uh, you know engage only with people who will engage with me in good faith uh you know who are not looking for a gotcha moment or who are not looking to fight uh another thing i kind of value more as i have grown older i'm in my late 40s now is uh, just the human connection right like too often what happens is that we all of us uh, in a sense behave as if we are the center of the universe and everything else is instrumental uh for us to feel a certain way or uh, get a certain kind of pleasure or whatever you know we are the central character in a play everyone else is a prop it's almost like a default thing this is something in fact immanuel kant warned about with the second categorical imperative that you know treat other people as an end in themselves not as a means to an end and this is something i grow more and more conscious of and perhaps this podcast has helped because having a long form podcast means i have to learn to listen better you know as steven covey said listen to understand and not just listen to respond you know so take the ego out of it uh, and i think that helps because w- w- you know one of the things which gives me joy in my podcast for example is long personal conversations where i'm just getting to know someone better and it's not about and beyond a point neither of the people in the conversation are thinking about how they want to project themselves to the world or what other people will think they're just chilling enjoying each other's company being with themselves and even outside of podcasts even in the real world that's something i like that just sit with people talk about different things and uh, leave disagreements aside now obviously there are some disagreements which can be like a line in the sand because uh, you know it depends on what values you hold dear to yourself but by and large i find that um, uh, you know it's much more productive to engage with people at that level where you're assuming good faith you are not competing all the time um and not kind of fighting all the time like one tendency indians uh, have a lot uh, which uh, and even though your mindset is not like that at all i notice you have the same habit which is of beginning every sentence with but right and even if you agree you'll begin it with but it's it's an interesting habit just listen around you and uh, uh, check it out you know listen back to this episode and see that even when you're agreeing with me you're kind of starting with but and indians do this much more than others and i don't i i i have no idea why that is the case i have no theories on why, why that is the case so i want to kind of get past that that you know uh, i don't like to be adversarial with people i I'd, i'd rather respect them for what they are and kind of learn from them and so on and so forth now those are the norms i have for myself and as part one of my answer and part two of my answer is that then even in the public space uh, if you are a person who has a public presence or whatever limited kind it is then your responsibility to behave in that way to improve the public space to not pollute the public space further and to behave in that way and be uh, you know uh, behave with that kind of dignity and that kind of respect for others and whoever you are sort of talking to so i try to do that i mean obviously one is imperfect and i have evolved and perhaps you know 5 years back i would not have been exactly like this and it's a journey that one is on and one of the things i also do on social media or twitter is that i i i block uh, liberally and and that therefore means that over a period of time if you block enough people uh, then um, you know the the people who could potentially troll you get less and less and i think that's kind of important because just as in your real life you want to get toxic people uh, you want to not engage with toxic people it's uh, similar 
on uh, social media so uh, and i don't block people who disagree with me i just block for rudeness that's my main thing if you're being rude or if you are uh, interacting in a way where it's obvious that you're not interacting in a good faith way uh, then i'll just block you there's no point in that but otherwise i'm perfectly happy to uh, disagree because uh, everybody disagrees with me so i would be all alone if i uh, if if i made that a factor so yeah so i haven't really put much thought into this per se how does one build no- social norms around myself but in the private sphere and the public sphere these are the sort of ways that i would kind of uh, uh, behave i was very very tempted to start this with i agree with you but but i'm not going to do that so <laughs> 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 just yeah. for the meme but uh, the blocking thing i find muting more fun because they'll they'll keep responding to you and they'll never have the pleasure of posting the 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 blocked screenshot but <laughs> no no i'll i'll tell you why blocking is important blocking is important because the way coordinated attacks come mm-hmm. both from the left and the right mm-hmm. is that there will be people who will come across your tweet screenshot it send it on whatsapp groups and they coordinate attacks and i've been at the receiving end of it many times from both the left and the right uh, and from you know if i criticize x party today their it cell will also get on the job so mm-hmm. what blocking simply does is that uh, it means that many of these prominent people won't even see your tweet in the first place to screenshot mm-hmm. it and make you a target so that's what i kind of do that you just block enough people they won't even notice you like i remember after demonetization happened in 2016 and uh, right from day 1 i was incredibly critical of it because obviously the largest assault mm-hmm. on property rights in human history and i wrote column after column against it one of which i wrote for times of india and went viral and was tweeted out by rahul gandhi kejriwal everyone uh, and the it cell really got after me right it was mm-hmm. a mass attack and it was wonderful because uh, i realized that you can activate your dopamine in your brain by blocking you can get addicted to blocking so with ev- so every time you block someone you're getting a dopamine hit and it's just pleasurable but what also happened there was that in a couple of weeks i just blocked so many people that is very difficult for them to troll me after that because you actually have to see my account to go to an incognito page and go specifically to my twitter account and to screenshot my thing and all of that is cumbersome right it is uh, so in the first place and i am not the kind of super prominent figure uh, like a barkhada or a ramchandra guha that they'll make that kind of effort and that i'm a primary target which i'm not thankfully so far uh, but and, and it's bad for them you know i t- i told ram when he came on my show that whenever barkha ram whenever i go on the internet and i find my notifications are flooded with abuse i realize that either barkha or ram has retweeted me because mm-hmm. all their legion of toxic followers will unleash themselves and i'll get those notifications as well so i don't know how they cope with that but the way i cope with that is just just block them all would you i refuse to deal with such topics mostly because i find them very well served in the public commentary what do you have, have you read brian kaplan's uh, blog post which goes on make your own bubble in 10 easy steps No, I haven't seen that. Wait, it's an exceptional blog post. I'll, I'll send you later. But basically, goes Tell that me. you you divorce yourself from society. You live in your own bubble. You talk to your own people. You basically um, spend all your time on social media with with your own people. You you don't worry about the world's problems. And then you know you pick one or two things you really care about, and you go all in on those. And that like the rest of your life becomes really simple. What do you think of that? Shouldn't isn't that a, a more sane way of 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 It, it just exposes you to less of these jobless people uh, sharing screenshots around WhatsApp groups. 
I agree with that, uh, uh, and I'll agree with that with one addition, which is that of course you want to, and 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 the thing is, much as I have dissed Twitter just now, the fact is that it's also a wonderful way to find deeply interesting people to follow. Uh, you know, m- m- so many of the best minds in the world are on there thinking aloud for your benefit every single day. That's an incredible privilege. So obviously, you want to curate your Twitter timeline in such a way that every day you're being exposed to thought-provoking ideas and thoughts from leading thinkers around the world, and that's great. And you, it's a good thing to curate your feed that way and to build a, a bubble of people like that. But also, I would say. that if you think that the ideas that you care about can have an impact on society if you feel that dissent is important in the world that you're uh, living in then you also need to broadcast your views and i use the term broadcast like what i try to do is uh, you know one through my podcast of course i'm trying to um, uh, just um, uh deepen the discourse a little bit in 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 the little small way that i can by having conversations and dialogues i do but even otherwise like back in my blogging days when i i used to blog five times a day between 2003 and 2009 i think i had 8000 posts in that time uh furiously and i think what you also need to do is you need to put those thoughts those arguments out there in the public domain and i call it broadcast because after putting them out i have no interest in really interacting with trolls who um, you know might say whatever about it so Uh, uh you know so i don't use twitter for conversations except for dear friends and uh, you know all uh, and and stuff like that and you know in areas that cannot get out of hand and toxic but otherwise i think there is a responsibility on all of us who think about the world who um, care about the discourse who realize that it needs to be deepened and enriched to also broadcast our thoughts and our arguments out there and i try to do that and i think brian tries that as well you know uh, all of these guys um, you know tyler alex all of them they are extremely important figures in the public square they may not be engaging all the time with um, uh, people on twitter or social media or whatever but many people look to them for their insights look to them as guides in different matters like i have discovered so many books through tyler's um, uh posts on uh, you know what he's reading at a given point in time and i think that's an important role and i think that the internet is a better space if people like tyler and alex and brian and paul graham and all of these people are sharing their thoughts with the whole world are thinking aloud for the world as it were and and uh, i i think that's uh, important uh, that's an important thing to do i think that is that is fair Uh, there's a there's a there's a reader. I I would add yourself in that list. A question from my friend Hari Haran Jay Shankar goes like this. You know, Amit, uh, you are now a public intellectual, whether you you like it or not. Did you consider yourself that when you started blogging when uh, some fifteen twenty years ago? At the time, no. It it's not an ambition one has. At least it's not an ambition I had that oh, I want to be a public intellectual and all of that. I started blogging because at the time I started blogging, I was I had a day job in journalism. I was a managing editor at Cricket Four, which was a cricket website. I was doing cricket journalism. I wanted to write about other stuff, so I started India Uncut at that time because. Uh, uh blogging in just in terms of form gave you so much freedom 
you didn't have to go through gatekeepers you could write about anything at all you weren't restricted to the news cycle you could choose whatever form you wanted you didn't have to write an 800 word article anymore you could write an 80 word post or an 8000 word post and do whatever you wanted you could embed rabbit holes in the post with links and all of that so you could find your own voice instead of following the house style of some publication so it was liberating for me and i really enjoyed that and then what happened was that i got lucky enough that it became incredibly popular so that was a motivation for me to keep going and i just uh, sort of uh, kept going and um, you know and it kind of worked the other way in the sense that mainstream media then started approaching me wall street journal came to me and i wrote a few op-eds for them i got a column for mint uh, won the bastia prize for them so a bunch of things kind of sparked off from that now as far as thinking of uh, the term public intellectual is concerned to some degree i suppose i am my reach is extremely limited but i keep telling people like i i've had this conversation with ramchandra guha he doesn't um, he's not fond of that term particularly but i think it's an important term i think people whose ideas are important to the world or who believe that uh, their ideas need to be out there need to therefore see themselves as public intellectuals and craft their public behavior accordingly think about the ways in which they are putting their ideas into the discourse uh, now people like ram and pratap bhanu mehta obviously are a whole level uh, different from me but in whatever small way i can i try to do that as well that is also a responsibility to society in a sense that you don't just want to say that uh, you know i am in a world of one person and you know um, uh, i i'll i'll do what i do you also want to get get your ideas out there uh, in whatever way you can if you believe that uh, it's worth putting out there and what i also therefore try to do is use the platform that i have now the scene in the unseen to also get the ideas of other people out there to get conversations out there like more important than idea x or idea y or idea z more important than individual ideas is the conversations between people with different ideas and those conversations don't happen enough in the public square right now the public square is all posturing and preaching to the choir and shouting at each other and you know all of that and i think that the most important uh, thing to do is to be able to talk to each other again and i think most people get this the thing with you know i complained about the tribalism on twitter but it's a sort of a vocal minority that makes all the tribalistic noises the silent majority out there you know wants depth wants to listen to uh, different points of view wants to engage politely and respectfully and they like it when other people uh, do that so uh, so yeah i mean i don't think of myself in grandiose terms as you know i am certainly not a public intellectual in the way that any of the people uh, i named are but i would say that to the limited extent that i have a public visibility and people follow me uh, i want to uh, you know uh, you know think of that and and behave in a responsible way and you know try to sort of uh, make the discourse better and take it away from the tribalism and toxicity that i uh, often bemoan let's say 10 years later right uh, that your podcast doesn't end up the way you you wanted to you say 10 years later oh this 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 thing was a was a mistake what's your pre-mortem for the podcast how could this go wrong because it's gone so well but you have so many examples of scott alexander this post of like of course we've we've thought of the corpses lying on the street so what's your corpse lying on the street I think you know at 
like what I, I you know i do it week after week because i find it rewarding and worth doing for its own sake and uh, when that stops then i'll stop you know and until uh, while that is going on i'll go on what i try to kind of try to do with the podcast is i don't overthink it like i have of course through evolution through trial and error uh, arrived at a particular way of working and a particular set of values which i apply to the uh, podcast uh, values in terms of how i go about my conversations and not uh, the values i want to promote or something but how i treat the whole craft of podcasting but uh, apart having done that i just go week by week like i recorded a podcast today morning and i'm not thinking about it anymore it's done you know when uh, the time comes to release it i'll listen to it again a couple of more times listen to the edits and make the show notes and all of that but i'm done with it i'm just constantly moving on um, and uh, it's the the premortem would really depend on me like i don't think i will ever look back on the work i am doing now and say this was not worth it i'm going to stop this that won't be the case what is more likely to happen is that uh, um uh, you know a truck could run over me for example and the podcast stops or i could at some point um, feel that it's i don't have it in me anymore to work this hard and just do this week in week out that's possible though i don't see it happening for a long time hopefully so my intention is just to keep it going but if i want to move to a quieter life where i chill out and don't do this at this intensity that's probably the premortem the reason it will stop one thing that i do not care about and that this podcast will never be dependent upon is the numbers how many people are listening whether there is validation or not i think that's a wrong way to go about it i do this podcast for its own sake because i believe it's worth doing and uh, th- i've been fortunate to be in a position that the numbers are great people love the show people give me their love that means a lot to me and that motivates me more than anything else to kind of keep going because i have a sense of what the show means to others as well but having said that even if that was to drop to zero if i felt it was worth doing even if you're a voice in the wilderness i would still keep doing it so yeah it's death is basically my death or my boredom or my moving away and doing something that i feel is more worthwhile uh, uh, with the limited bandwidth and attention i have that's fair i think i think that's the reason why more stuff stops to plug visa again you got to just keep doing it right one of the um you speak to i guess i i assume a large number of young people what is the biggest difference if you could generalize across generations between perhaps people born in the 70s and and 80s like yourself versus people born in the 2000s like myself i actually don't want to generalize because it's hard to generalize about generations like people will often bemoan that oh young people today are this or they are that and it really depends on what kind of young people you've been exposed to and if you've been exposed to certain toxic tribes on twitter then you might think oh you know there's no hope for the young anymore gen z is this and blah 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 but uh, you know i've also interacted with young people policy scholars phd students uh, enthusiastic people who work in startups and do things all my writing students of which there have been you know uh, around 1800 so far i think so i've interacted with a lot of those young people and like some of them are inc- like one they are way smarter than people of my generation not necessarily you know natively smarter but just that they've had so much more exposure 
to ideas and thoughts and books and all of that which uh, you know when we were growing up in india in the 80s and the 90s we simply didn't and therefore they are more developed along those lines their engagement with the world is often deeper i found that you know um, a lot of young people you know in terms of attitude what do you really need you need the humility to keep learning to never think of yourself as someone who's gotten there who is you know uh, you don't need to pro- progress anymore you need to have the humility to keep working hard and you need to have that work ethic and so many people i come across actually have that and uh, uh, so one can't really generalize but one thing that one can generalize about all young people born in the 2000s is that they don't have lived experience of pre liberalization india what life was like the scarcity mindset ah, thank like God. <laughs> so all my all my guests uh, who uh, sort of um, are of my vintage or older than me uh, you know we'll talk about life in those days and uh, it's a whole different kind of uh, uh, ball game in terms of what we were exposed to and we had to sort of construct ourselves step by step brick by brick painfully over a period of time whereas today young people just have the whole world of information open to them you can read any book you want listen to any song you want watch any movie that you want this is for us in the 80s this would have been utopian fantasy right whatever you can get whatever book you can get your hands on you read it it doesn't matter what the hell it is because there is such scarcity to you know you discover an artist and you want to put a mixtape together of the, of that work it could take weeks of jugar where you figure out who has an lp somewhere who has a double deck where you can take one cassette and record it into another and uh, this has i mean the uh, and and more than just being a nostalgic lament uh, this interacts with the real world in the sense that the ways in which we have progressed we sometimes take them for granted and don't realize what a big deal freedom and uh, consent uh, to go back to that uh, actually mean to you know in 91 we didn't uh, we we uh, sort of uh, uh, liberalized in a limited way we didn't do it as much as we should have but even that limited way took 300 400 million people out of poverty and changed the texture of our lives in dramatic ways and sometimes that is normalized and people kind of take these things for granted and we shouldn't take them for granted it's again um, you know going back to jefferson's phrase eternal vigilance is important we need to keep thinking about why we have the freedoms that we have and what more we still need to do to fight for more freedoms and to fight for more prosperity for everyone you know um one of the things i'm very surprised by is that a lot of the implicit advice in your podcast to very smart young people ends up being a uh, become a policy maker because that has uh, because if if you are a relatively liberty minded policy maker you you can you can do a lot of good things but spe- but listening to this the the other missing thing is that if you don't want to be a policy maker a great number 2 or an equivalent number 1 is go build good products that make people's lives better with use all the freedom you have what is that something you have thought about when when you're advising people or implicitly um getting guests in the in the podcast uh i haven't thought about it but i would say i'm a little surprised by you, the imp- implication that the number one thing that i want young people to do is be a policy maker because i've kind of been you know those who do end up as policy makers great but when i think of change uh 
mm-hmm. i think that if you're looking at the political marketplace mm-hmm. there's uh, you know m- what is more important than the supply end and the supply end are the politicians or bureaucrats or policy makers what is more important than the supply end is a demand end which is what do the people want because ultimately the politicians will cater to that and that will constrain uh, constrain what any government can do so it's actually more important to get out in the demand end because the demand end will actually drive behavior by changing the supply end and so therefore it is important for us to get our ideas out there among the masses now that is for uh, you know people who uh, want to be public intellectuals or who want to uh, sort of um, uh you know drive change in that way but it's okay if you don't want to drive social change i mean what what the greatest hope for liberalism in modern times is actually technology and private enterprise technology empowers us in so many ways that the state could not have um uh, you know and uh, political movements could not have like the very fact that you and i across uh, you know um, uh, this physical boundary can actually speak to each other have a conversation and then tens of thousands of people can hopefully listen to it and uh, you know maybe take away a stray idea or two from there mm-hmm. um, you know and completely forget where they might have got that thought from but bring it up in conversation with uh, a friend somewhere else and so on ideas circulate i think um, you know matt ridley had an essay or a book called when ideas have sex and mm-hmm. that's kind of what it is like and i think that's magical and i think technology can do a lot of that technology can empower uh, individuals like nothing else can and i think uh, young people kind of get this and private enterprise is a great thing because uh, you know uh, what a, a, a market is a mechanism by which civil society serves its own needs right every time you take a product or a service out into the market unless you're in a cronies system where you're selling to the government the only way you can make money is by making someone else's life better off it's a double thank you moment mm-hmm. and that's wonderful the only way therefore that we can achieve prosperity ourselves at an individual level is by creating value for others and by making other people in our society better off and that's fantastic and we shouldn't distract either uh, and my central advice to all young people is that you know be authentic to yourself and uh, you know don't try to um uh, you know make yourself do uh, something because you are second guessing what others will expect of you mm-hmm. or that is how you want to be seen and so on and so forth you need to kind of sit down ask yourself what kind of person am i what am i comfortable doing what is my comfort zone what am i good at and just proceed along those lines rather than along a template that you might feel somebody else uh, would have set for you you know speaking of uh, spreading ideas right this is hilar- this amazing anecdote i uh, found and i was uh there's a bts account there, there's a twitter account that basically uh, when bts you know the korean the the k-pop band when the when the pop stars post photos in the background you can see books in the in the bookshelves and there's one account that 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 analyzes the books you find in those bookshelves and then uh, writes threads about that and one of the uh, more interesting ones was it basically wrote a semi viral thread about how, about how some k-pop star that the korean the korean version of doing good better and effective altruist book right and basically people were like oh super cool we're going to have effective altruism in korea so if if you said you were going to write the the book i would say uh, definitely do it because you never know where the impact is now that small aside aside um you've talked to me for an hour, for roughly an hour now what question do you have for me what do you think that that i'm missing over here that 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 you want to know 
I don't know you well enough, honestly, to uh, know what you're sort of uh, missing. But uh, the questions that I would have that I'm interested about everybody and therefore about you also is what drives you. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. want to wake up every day in the morning looking forward to the day, mm-hmm. right? You want to jump out of bed looking mm-hmm. forward to the day. What kind of day is that which you're looking forward to? What drives you? Uh, probably tomorrow because I'll be having three podcasts. But <laughs> so I'll be waking up yeah. very early in the morning. But <laughs> no, uh, the what drives me in the more longer run, it is that I really, really like. So I really, really like talking to people. Although, like, definitely, I just, I, I just came back from party. I'm like, oh, no, I prefer talking to people on the on the internet so much more. But I, I definitely enjoy talking to people whom I select to. One of the more interesting things for me is what pushes me is grappling with very um, important ideas and their implications. I would credit uh, basically the econ blogosphere slash effective altruist blogosphere for that, for figuring out what are the important things you should you should work on and you know a lot of people believe things but people don't take it seriously so you have Brian Kaplan's amazing book The Myth of the Rational Voter where he says that you know a lot of people don't take that the reason why people are so crazy is that they don't take their belief seriously and if you if you take the the quality of that what would a society where people took their belief seriously look like or what would my life look like if I took the, my belief seriously and it would probably be some version of you should, you should work to increase economic growth across countries and uh, regions. So I think one thing that basically drives me is working towards some version of, of, of that goal. And finally, I really think I should have started earlier. So one thing that 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 and the and the like the the, the last thing that pushes me is well, I've missed out on a lot, so I better catch up. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the young people like you should not really be saying that. <laughs> so t- tell me one more thing. Out of all the episodes that you've done and the conversations that you've had. What are the biggest TILs? Like, what are the learnings or insights that have really stayed with you through all this time? On the more object level, the most important, the most like mind-blowing moment was I talked to Mike Bird, a journalist from now of The Economist, and he, and he lived in Hong Kong, and he said, you know, I asked him, why doesn't Hong Kong have, have a startup sector? So, it, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in Hong Kong. And he gave me this, this very nice explanation of how... Um, the Hong Kong government owns a lot of land, so so its incentive is to uh, basically increase the the prices and and the and the rents of the, of the land, so they get maximum revenue, and they don't need to have the popul- the unpopular option of, of raising taxes. I said, well, so what? And he said, well, that means that you know all these small companies where you, where you have three guys working in a garage don't exist anymore because it costs so much money. I'm like, wait, that's connected? And he says, yeah, that's connected. So every time I see anything now, I focus on the general equilibrium. That that is the biggest uh, learning from the from the podcast the more important thing is that on on a more like meta level working with people is that the most successful and interesting people i talk to have incredibly high ambitions so it's 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 perfectly fine to say like you know to use an to use an analogy that if if you're a cricketer all like most people say oh i might get to ranji or or, i might play play in the ipl for a few times but in in the in the world you and I are in, there is no set number of places on the team. There, there's no rule that there can be only eleven podcasters or, or eleven uh, newsletter writers. So once you internalize those two things, that you know there is no speed limit. Derek Silvers has a great uh, blog post, which, is, which says that you know he, he he goes to learn music and his uh, 
professor says, okay, show up tomorrow at 9 a.m. And he actually shows up and he does the work. And his professor says, you know what? There is no speed limit. There's no reason to do a four-year course in four years. And you can do it in six months if you if you work hard enough. I think that is the biggest, if you see, if I see all the people who I'm inspired talking to on this, including yourself, there is no speed limit on, on what you can do. So I think that is my biggest learning from uh, the 36 or so episodes I've I've had. And I'll throw back the question you asked me at you about the young people today, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, it's impossible to gen- um, um, uh, generalize, except that you're a young person yourself <laughs> today, and you're kind of in the middle of that. So tell me a little bit about that. That when you look at your, um, when you look at people in your generation, or you look at the people around you, and so on and so forth, you know what is what is your sense? Like, what does someone like me? Uh, not get about them or uh, you know what do they have that my generation could not possibly have perhaps I think you will get what it is because you're very online I think in in my personal view the most important dividing factors today are not uh, like conservatives would say like it's it's race or religion or or, uh, you know Marxists would say it's class but in my opinion and, and obviously in the bubble I Living, the most important dividing factor today is basically how much you're willing to put yourself outside. And when you're very young, and you, the way it works for most young people in developed countries and the upper and the middle class and upper middle class of developing countries is that you have to put yourself through a certain hoops, a certain set of institutions to get into. You know, I have to write the JE, I have to get into a top five IIT, and then. The most important, the most optimistic thing I've seen is people basically saying, "Oh, I can reject. There's no reason for me for for that to be my primary uh, thing in life. There's 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 absolutely no reason for me to run with established institutions." And I feel overall, it it is not the fault of anybody who's grown up in a in a world where the only competent entities were those es- es- established institutions but now you know when you see that you can do stuff outside of these it's very surprising to them and they inadvertently in in ways they do not expect and if you explain the the harms to them they would feel sorry for stop these people and so i think that is the biggest difference here which is that um among a very very small set of young people they definitely believe that 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 there is no speed limit and they and they have a lot less faith in the in the to use a cliche term the old world and they and they and they, and they want to build the the, the 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 new world historically of course these things don't don't end very well but it's always fun to see the the level of optimism you, you have i think that is the the biggest thing but uh, but on the other hand most people i know when they grow up become jaded and pessimistic about lives so so maybe uh age so maybe they are right but they shouldn't discourage people from 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 being wrong here and what are and my final question, which I'll ask you, and then we can uh, resume uh, regular <laughs> no service. Problem. But what are what are the sort of books or ideas or thinkers that have really influenced hmm. you and changed the way you think about the world? I think the f- most important thing I ever did, which was not my fault, which is I failed an economics class. My first economics test I took, I got like eight on twenty, and I hated doing that. It was part of me that I I can't fail the test. So I go home and I start crying, and I and mom's like, it's okay, you know, it happens. And I go open marginal the uh, revolution university, and I get sucked into the Tyler Cowen uh, extended universe. I think that is a very very important thing because part of his advice is also there is no speed limit, right? I think that that was very very important. A lot of also what is very imp- what was very very influential to me regarding books. I I would not classify this as a book, but I would say that um, 
in 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 many ways our learning programming is very very it changes your brain in ways it say is supposedly when you learn something your brain structure changes i'm i'm not an expert in this but i find that to be very useful in the sense that um the most important thing i ever did with with regards to the way i think was do incredibly hard math physics and computer science problems because they force you to think in different ways if you see a weird diagram your first instinct when you don't know it is to freak out but when you do have experience it's to break things piece by piece or where does this thing go or where does that piece of code go or something like that yeah so you know when you see a difficult diagram you initially freak out because it's a it's a big diagram and and and, and it's a problem but when you force yourself to work through these things you realize that, that every big diagram is just small diagrams so personally that that helps a lot if you, if you see a big problem in your professional or personal life it is just you you got to start hitting through it i think that is very very underrated among especially am- among smart people because you don't the selection bias that that happens is you know there's this very common story i i i hear from teachers and professors which is somebody is very smart and they go through high school and then then they go to college or grad school and then they hit a wall because they relied on themselves being very smart so long and they've never really built the habits to uh, go through life on and when you don't have those those habits it's like it's like dropping you know somebody into a new civilization and and the, the, the very very difficult so i think in many ways working through difficult problems regardless of whether they're their maths or 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 or, or writing long long essays or books when you force yourself to do difficult things you basically get yourself to uh ev- your overall executive function improves so i think that is very very uh, important and the last thing basically would be on uh the last 8 months or so of effectively free time i've got means that i spend so much time talking to internet people and that has been very very good because uh the podcast and the and the and the blog but also because i made a great number of friends and they probably outnumber my uh in real life friends by now so uh, i think those are my three biggest influences yeah that's fascinating because you know even with me uh, all the good friends i have now are pretty much people i made starting with the blogging years and is because of the mm-hmm. internet and you know so earlier there is that constraint that you're constrained by circumstances of birth by geography mm-hmm. you know your community is really not your co- a community that is restrained by all of these things but today you can have a community of choice because of the internet and mm-hmm. meet like-minded people or people who are in the same journey as you and uh, that's also so liberating and something that we kind of take for granted so i i totally get that yeah um a question i had from often was what drives you in the in the sense that what what makes you happy to to wake up every 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 morning and then you know spend an inordinate amount of time editing podcasts <laughs> the most annoying part yeah i mean i have an editor i don't actually edit it myself oh, yeah. but uh, but i do spend a fair bit of time uh, prepping for it and all of those things i think so but it's it's a good question and i'll answer it at a broader level i think when i was younger i made the mistake which perhaps many which is a natural mistake i think almost everyone does it is that you begin to define happiness in terms of goals specific things you want to achieve so you might think i want to be so rich or i want to you know win these awards or i want to you know write this many books or whatever and you think it, think of it in terms of goals and in, in terms of destinations that i want to get here and i will be happy and the problem is that then you get on that treadmill where either you don't get it and so you're always unhappy or you get it and then you have your next target and you're still unhappy because you're moving towards that 
and i think sort of reaching uh, uh, middle age uh, sort of brought me to the realization that uh, you know that that that's a flawed notion of happiness it it in fact guarantees the opposite and what uh, uh, you know a much better way to live your life is to take happiness in the small things to not take the, the small things around you that could give you happiness to not take them for granted and to take happiness in the small things it might be a good meal and you just need to be mindful of it instead of you know not thinking about it it might be looking out of the window at a good view it might be a conversation with an old friend or a new friend where you know uh, that the human connection is also useful so my uh, so in that sense i've kind of changed my notions where i don't anymore think in terms of oh i have to write so many books or i have to do xyz though obviously those goals are there but you know one of the key things i teach in my writing class also is that processes matter that you need to for example build a writing habit and take joy in that and i i talk in my course of course about various ways of doing this but the point is that if your writing just to take one example one domain as an example is always um instrumental that oh i want to write an essay so i will sit down and write today or oh i want to write a book so i'll take 6 months off and uh do whatever i have to do uh then it's it's a bit of a problem what you need to do is to get in that state where writing is just an everyday daily habit you are doing it for yourself also it you know writing deepens your sense of self um i i did this episode with amitabh kumar the writer and you know and he talks about journaling and the importance of that and uh how you know like i think if you take the same individual and you put him in two parallel universes and in one of them he doesn't write anything for 5 years and in the other one he writes every day for 5 years the person in that second universe who's writing every day will at the end of that 5 years be you know just far more self aware and will have a much greater depth of understanding of himself and uh, the world around him and i think that uh, and that's just one example of how habits and processes are so important and uh, the goals then come by themselves uh, you know then when you want to sit down and write an article it's not a problem anymore you've got that groove going and you can just get it done and um, and i think that's kind of important that i therefore think more about i try to it's it's still uh, difficult i have to keep reminding myself uh, be mindful be in the present moment but i think that just uh, you know your greatest sources of joy will always come from the texture of your daily life and the things that you do you read a nice book that can be so joyful you listen to music you like i mean at this moment in time i can do something i could not have imagined doing in when i was 20 it would have seemed magical that i can hit a button on my laptop and listen to any freaking song i want that's mind blowing and so there is so much um uh, you know to to kind of take uh, satisfaction and joy from so that is one thing and also i like the sense of just working being productive you know that is today perhaps right now at this moment when we are speaking in the limited context of the podcast and maybe the writing course but there are other areas where i want to be productive as well such as writing books and so on and so forth uh, where i've kind of let myself down where uh, i and the, the the years just went by and that's again one thing i want you know keep telling young people especially um, you know my students of my course and all that that the years pass very fast you have to build habits otherwise we will just procrastinate and nothing will get done and it's important to just build habits and keep going uh, be relentless about it you know uh, if you want to 
plan the perfect podcast episode you can plan forever but if you just get at it and week after week do things you you you'll do amazing things good things will happen you know so i have a bias towards action uh, now definitely you know with everything that you do in life there is a trade off between getting it done and getting it right and uh, i getting it right eventually is important but the way to get it right is to get it done again and again and again you know iteration uh, leads to excellence